I am being filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm pleasing him in all respects. I am bearing fruit in every good work. And I'm increasing in the knowledge of God. Say one more time, I am bearing fruit in every good work. And I'm increasing in the knowledge of God. All right, today is our school of prayer again. Let's um, quickly learn something. And as I was just thinking, what do we go on to look at today as part of praying for a new season? Uh, that is a new year we just commenced. So we are just saying prayers uh, to get ourselves ready. We say if you, want to, uh, pour, if you want to step on cool ground, you learn to pour water ahead of you. And we say the water that we are pouring. Now that's, that's not scripture, that thing we said. I hope you know it's just an African proverb. I hope you know. Because some people go and say, the Bible says, if you want to, I better go. I didn't write a new Bible, though. Uh-huh. All right. That would be Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 5. <laughs> Many people don't know there's no book of Ezekiel. <laughs> All right, the Lord is good. So it's just an African proverb. Please, I wanted to just get the point, okay? So it says that um, if you want to step on cool ground, you learn to pour, throw water ahead of you. We just find out that this is true spiritual principle that what you do is to prepare for what you want to do. And our own water is the water of the word of God. And that's what we do with our prayer. I said something to us before, that prayer is one advantage that we have as Christians. And that's what God gave us to use. Uh, that's what, give, what the Lord gave to us so that we can use spiritual power to control the things that are physical. That is, and what we're supposed to do is not just to direct things anyhow, but to cause physical things to be aligned to the other or predetermined by God. Do you follow my point? For example, sickness is not the order of God. Jesus said something when he was teaching the disciples and the Jews. He said, in the beginning, it was not so. So you must always ask yourself, what is God's order in the beginning? Then he was speaking specifically about marriage. Are you getting my point? And he said that this was how he that made them, this was how he made them. He made them male and female. And he said that when the two of them are joined, they become one flesh. And whatever God has so joined together, no one should put asunder. And what was he saying? That if you find things not in the order that God made it at the beginning, it is your duty and your responsibility to obey God so as to restore the original order. I was giving sickness as an example. It's not part of God's original order. It definitely was not there. So when we are praying against it, what we are saying is that we want to restore this order back to how God made it in the beginning. Are you getting my point? And that's what prayer is. We don't judge our lives based on what we are seeing. We judge our lives based on what the word of God describes as the will of God. I said something to us last year, and I want to just repeat it again. There's a difference between the judgment and the will of God. Everything we see in life, God has to command it to happen. Even if it's natural disasters, they can't happen until God says, go ahead and happen. Many people don't believe that. They say that Satan is doing things like that. It is not true. Some people have used arguments that, okay, if it was God, how come uh, Jesus was able to stop the storm? You must understand the way things work. God as judge is different from God as father. He's the same person, but there are things that are his job as the judge of the whole earth. And when Satan wants to afflict, when Satan wants to spoil things, what he does is to go with accusations before the throne of God. And that's why the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Read my book, By Faith, Acquire Life. In it, I explain that life is like a courtroom. You are like, I mean, you and, your, and different parts of your life, all right? 
you are under accusation once in a while. You're under trial. Yes, you're on trial. So what you find is an accuser of the brethren that comes up, okay, to bring forth accusations against you. And what you do as a Christian, all right, is to bring forth defense in the blood of Jesus, of course, in the favor of yourself. You utter words in your own favor. What God now does is to release judgment. That judgment must always be fair. That judgment is never biased because he's your father. All right? As a judge, he's always fair. So if people come up and say, okay, this is the accusation against the person, and there is no word of intercession in your favor, God will rule against you, not because he likes it. So what happens is that Jesus is a personification of the mercy of God. So sometimes something is happening. As the mercy of God, he now speaks up. Are you getting my point? When he brings himself into the atmosphere, then things have to calm down. You see in the other, in the situation in which there was a storm, Satan waited for him to fall asleep. <laughs> Do you get my point? Before he brought up his accusations against the disciples. Before he brought up his accusations against the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they aroused him, all right, and he came into the situation, all right, and when his own case came up in the matter, of course, if that, that was how the case that it swung in their direction. What am I going to say? That listen, in life, it is our duty to do what we have to do, especially pray, so as to convert the judgment of God to the will of God, so that God will issue decrees in line with his will. Do you get my point? His will is the, th- the way things were at the beginning. But sometimes you come there and you hear that um, an enemy has done this. When he said that the Lord sowed a wheat, and then you now find out tears are now growing. They say, what happened? They say, an enemy has done this. The original intention is the will of God. All right? But when things happen, when people sin, when people speak negatively, when people disobey God, when God says you can enter into the promised land, and they don't enter, then God will have to issue a decree in line with the evidence before him. All right? So what we do as Christians, now that we have given our lives to Christ, is to start working and praying. We work in our lives with our words, with our righteousness, and with our prayer to swing the judgment back in direction of what God actually wills. We must understand this point. We are, our life is not about the devil. Christians focus too much on the devil. Read the scriptures. What the Bible ever says about the devil, usually when it comes to the life of a Christian, is for us to resist his temptation. What we do in the lives of other people is to deliver them from the oppression of the devil, which they got into because of sin. That's just the way it is, alright? They're sitting, sitting in the atmosphere. But when it comes to your life and mine, what we do is to execute the will of God in our lives. And as far as the devil is concerned, we resist him. He is never, listen, go and look at it. He is never a problem to the believer, apart from what he constitutes as what? Temptation. He's a tempter. Do you get my point? He's a tempter. Once you are, once you are able to resist him and speak against his accusations, you are free. You don't have to be boxing and fighting him. No. I don't like prayers that focus so much on the devil. No, it's not necessary prayer. Your duty as a believer is to swing the judgment of God back to become aligned with the will of God. The devil has no power in your life. Everything he brings is what? Temptation. Temptation. Sometimes even the symptoms he puts in your body are temptation. And you see where I'm going in a moment, all right? Actually, what, what I was thinking about, how do we continue this prayer today? Something came to my mind, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit that wants us to look at that. Let's look at the man Peter again. I, I, there's a principle I want to look at there. 
Please, what I've said so far, let me just repeat. Let me just say one or two things about it again. Let me summarize it because I said many things. In summary, the fact that something is happening outside, it does not change the opinion of a Christian. We learn from the word that is written, what is the will of God, and we live and pray so as to swing the experiences outside to become aligned with God's will. The fact that it's happening outside, like as I'm trying to emphasize, is the judgment. Anything you see outside, whether it's the will or not, is the judgment of God. But if the judgment does not align with the will, we pray, we do what we have to do to ensure that the experience outwardly is in line with what? The will. Do you get my point? That's what faith is. Faith is not, I get up, I imagine that I can be driving six cars, I just want to have everything. And ask somebody if you can believe. That's not what faith is. Faith is not, is not the way by which I get everything that just comes to my mind. Alright? That's not what faith is. Faith is that I have a duty to look at God's word, believe that word, until that word becomes the reality. I hope you're getting my point. That's what faith is. Faith is not based on my desires. That is a mistake we make a lot of times. We'll continue talking about faith on Saturday. Faith is not desire. Faith is totally not desire. Faith is relationship with God's word. People say when you have a desire, go and look for faith to now make it sure that if you have a hope, hope is not sure. That's not what the Bible says. What happens is that when a man has experiences, experiences create for you expectation. Are you getting my point? That expectation is called hope. The word of God is also an experience. So when you interact with God's word, it also creates for you an expectation. And that is the one that the Bible calls the true hope. So when I've experienced God's word, it compels me to expect something. Are you getting my point? And that's what the Bible means when it says faith is a substance of hope. That is, if you see a man that has hope, if you see any person that has hope, that hope is because of something the fellow knows. I hope you get my point. So if it's the word of God, they say it's walking by faith. That is the meaning of faith. That is the meaning of hope. Hope is not your desire. Please, I need to correct this because it's very common in um, faith teachings. People mis- make a mistake concerning that Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 11. They make the mistake. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. They now say if you have a hope, you go and look for faith to give it substance. Sorry, that's not what the Bible was saying. What the Bible was saying is that if you find hope, it is because there is faith. Now listen to this. If I say an engine is a substance of a car speeding on the highway, you don't say if a car is speeding, we now look for an engine to make it solid. No. What I mean is that if a car is speeding, it is because he has a working engine. So if a man has hope, it is because he has faith. And that's why the Bible tells you that who in hope believed against hope. That is, Abraham had two hopes. The first hope was that the man looked at his life. I've been married for this length of time. Look at it, my, look at my age now. Look at the age of my wife. So when God came to him, he asked God, what do you give me seeing that I go childless? He was not dead, but he had the conclusion that he was going to die childless. Why? Experience. We've tried for 30 years. My wife has now gone past menopause. 
That's a concluded matter. I am going to go childless. Okay, so what will you now give me? And God said, who said you are going to go childless? God now said to him, Here, now I want to paraphrase it. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Your wife will conceive and she will bear. And then you will be a father of many nations. And the Bible says, Abraham believed it. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. After that, his name changed from being Abraham to Abraham. After that, he never told God again, I will go childless. Now he had an expectation that in Isaac, that is, he was going to have a child. And in Isaac, his, his seed was going to be. You know, after that, he was looking forward to something. Even when he had Isaac, and God said, go and sacrifice Isaac. The man, because he had the word of God, he had an expectation that Isaac would still live. So when a man is going like that, it was not desire now. It was that a word came and gave me something else to look forward to. So what the Bible was saying that faith is why a man looks forward to something. He wasn't saying faith is how a man meets his desires. Faith is why a man, a woman looks forward to something that can look unreasonable. He said, why do you think this is? Because I read the scriptures. Please, let's get that about faith. I will explain it again. Maybe when we get back, you know, we're talking about total faith in our holiday teachings. I'm just going somewhere here, all right? Let's look at that story of uh, Peter again. There's something I want to bring forth. This is our school of prayer. Mark chapter 14. That's a Mark. Did I say Mark? I open my mouth and say Mark. Okay. Because here I say I'm looking at Matthew. Sorry, oh. Matthew chapter 14. <laughs> this was after he fed the multitude. In verse 22, the Bible says that he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Why he sent the multitude away. Then after they had sent them away, he went to the mountain to go and pray. Then after a while, because he wasn't there, look at verse 24. The boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And then the disciples saw him walking on the, on the sea. They were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That's our message, Peter, and the water experience. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now, I just wanted us to read this again because the Bible study and um, prayer meeting. Let's read the word of God. I know we all know the story here. And you will now see what I want to talk about, why I'm referring to this. I was saying that it is our duty as Christians to make sure that the experiences of life and 
which is God's judgment, that they align with the will of God. And that will is expressed in the scriptures. Let me emphasize again. Our lives are not dictated by what goes on around. Our lives must be dictated by the word and will of God. You don't run up and down because of economic circumstances. Even if things are hard, maybe you have been in Enugu for a while, things don't seem to be working. There are many reasons why it may not work. I need to emphasize that. One of them may be, it is possible, that Enugu is not a place where you are supposed to be. It's possible. It's very, very possible. But that is not automatic. Because what a lot of people would do is, they think a change of location instantly is a way to solve a hardship problem. There are many reasons why things may be, may be rough. That is even assuming that it's out of order. Whatever, it's not a trial of faith. It's not, um, um, it's not a just recompense of reward, really, uh, for iniquity. There are many reasons. You can be in the wrong place, that is true. You can be doing the wrong thing in the right place. I hope you get my point. Don't ever forget that. You can be doing the right thing in the right place in the wrong way. The place is right. The thing is right. The way is wrong. And what I have found most common amongst Christians is this last part. The right thing, the right place, the wrong way. That's what I found out very, very common amongst Christians. Let's take a businessman as an example. They set out to do their business, and they check how everybody else around is doing it, and that's exactly how they want to do it. The mistake Christians make is that they forget that in the midst of the world, they are supposed to be a fountain of truth. What does that mean? They bring forth a new method of doing things. So many times in life we are frustrated because we are using the old method. And God said, no, the reason why I brought you here is that I want things to be done through a new method. One, he doesn't pour grace on the old method in your hands. And two, he deliberately frustrates the old method in your hands so that you will remember to ask questions as to why things are going like this. Many people don't bother at all to find out this part of it. They easily run away, and the basis is because things are better somewhere else. Someone will tell him that if you go to Lagos, this works. Now, that man may have gone to Lagos, the person telling the story, because in his own life, it was a problem of location. I don't know whether you're getting my point. Somebody else may have moved from Menugu and gone to um, Abakaliki and done well, because in his own life, it was a problem of location. Unfortunately, he now comes and thinks that the problem for everybody is location. Sometimes it's not location. Sometimes it is method. Sometimes it is timing. You understand? There are so many things that could be wrong. And like I said before, let me just really I'm digressing. I've not even gone to what I want to say today, but I feel like God wants me to say this. So let me continue saying it. I'll get back to this in a moment. All right? This is the advantage Christians have in what we call fasting and prayer. I will talk about fasting again. You know, you can't say these things enough. You have to keep on saying them until everybody understands them. Hunger does not in any way make your prayer effective. It doesn't. 
What the Bible, in fact, I don't just have the time now to go into details. God actually, at a point in time, criticized those who like to go hungry so as to change his mind. He said, what's wrong with you? Change your hearts. Change the way you behave. You keep on going hungry. Everything. He said, is that the fast I have chosen? For a man to go hungry, for a man to put it, to be looking tired, for a man to humble himself, for a man to wear ashes and sackcloth. He said, is that the fast I have chosen? He said, that's not the fast I like. The fast I like is for a man to change the way he does things. If you are selfish, share your food with somebody else. If you are walking unrighteously, start walking righteously. That's my fast too. That's what this, your humbling of your face, making yourself go hungry and feeling very righteous. I, in fact, I'm tired of seeing it. I've enjoyed it for a long time. You guys don't seem to get the point. He said, where did he say that? I said, chapter 58. He's written very clearly. But I don't think we, let me just, <laughs> I don't know whether I can clearly get a, a, a short line to read so that, um, let me just, um, maybe I should just read it from uh, verse um, 6. That's Isaiah 58. Or let me start from verse 5. He says, is, is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed? And for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose? Not a day now. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke. And to let the oppressed go free. And break every yoke. Is it not that this is my fast? To divide your bread with the hungry. And bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. He said, then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of God will be your rare God. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Let me just stop reading here, all right? Now, why I just read this is to see what God said about it. People say that, you know, when his disciples of Jesus were going around with him, they were not fasting. And the Pharisees said, what is going on? He said that the bridegroom is with them. And then when the bridegroom is taken, they will fast. People say, see, the bridegroom has been taken. I said, you missed the point of the Lord Jesus. He was telling them that that time, that critical few days, from the time he was taken, beaten, crucified, until the resurrection, the men will be in distress. Thank you for the word. The men will be so much in distress, the, the idea of eating will not come to their mind. And he said, I will not leave you, leave you as orphans. I will return to you. And how did he return? In the presence of the Holy Spirit. So they are back. We are back to working with the Lord Jesus on a daily basis. I'm going to emphasize something here. Forget this thing. The fasting, the way we talk about it, Christians practice it, is not, I'm sorry, you know I told you something on Saturday, or last Tuesday, you know what I like here? Eh? No, no, not the charge. I say anything I like. Thank you. And now only you are come. Remember that part of it. 
I know the thing about truth is that you can't keep on trying to be nice and want to offend people and you suppress truth. That would be unrighteousness. Okay? The way we do it these days in Christianity is not, is not right. That's not what God ordained us for. That was not why God called us. He doesn't want us to do like that. He doesn't like it. What he wants us to do is learn what is right and obey it. Please. I was saying, you don't improve the potency of your prayer by hunger. You don't. It's not Christianity. I'm not saying Christian should be a gluten. That's also a sin. Everything you see must go into your mouth. It's only a child that does that. An adult, the Bible says, we eat for strength. He said, blessed is a man, uh, is a land whose princes feast at the appropriate time. He said, they eat for strength, not for, is it not for pleasure? That's one thing about us as believers. We are princes of God, okay? So I want to strike that balance. But what do we use fasting for? I want to emphasize it. I need to emphasize that. It is to question. It is to ask. It's not to increase the potency of prayer. It is to ask questions. It is to be able to focus so as to know what God wants us to do next. Like I said earlier, there are many, many, many uh, variables in an issue in life. For example, like I said a man can be in the wrong place. A man can be doing the wrong thing. How do you choose where he or she is supposed to be? And our God is alive. Somebody say amen. amen. We have the Holy Spirit that is a living person, not just a force. God communicates an active plan and will to us on a moment-to-moment basis. It is there. It is available. It's called wisdom. It hides it, the Bible says, for the upright. Let's never forget that. We take advantage of it by asking questions. We take time out aside because in the multitude of everyday's activity, you can be so occupied, you can't hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. That's why... These days, people talk about fasting. Any fast in which your phone is not off, you are not fasting. In today's day and age, you are not fasting. If DSTV does not go on strike in your house, you are not fasting. If you pick your phone, you are not fasting. You are playing. The greatest weapon of mass distraction today is a mobile phone. And the reason is because it's no longer a phone. It's a device that happens to make phone calls, amongst other things. It's a machine. Do you get my point? That so many things are packed inside it, so you are not fasting if it's not off. You get where I'm, where I'm going? Because the thing checks your mail and drops it at your doorsteps. Somebody wants to check whether you are there, the phone will ask, okay, are you there? So if you are fasting, and that little rascal is not off. You are not fasting. Put it off. You say, what if they want to call me? That's what I'm saying. You are not fasting. You are expecting a call. Because God who wants to talk to you does not need a phone. He doesn't call your phone. So if it is fasting, you are fasting. You don't need that phone. And this fast is not for 41 days. You know that. I don't care what the kind of fast you want to fast. It mustn't cross 40 days. You're supposed to get respect. <laughs> I see Christians bragging on 60. If you brag on 60 days fast where I am, I'll be looking at you and say, this boy, you not get respect. Jesus that died for you, he do 40 days. He stop. Moses, the prophet before him, do 40 days. God said, go down, go down. Don't cross these 40 days. 
They fed Elijah with the food of angels. He worked out 40 days. That was the end of it. Then you, you, you know the respect person. I don't know whether it's true. They said when they wanted to crucify Peter. I don't know whether it's true. That they, they crucified Peter upside down. That what happened was that when they first crucified him, he was crucified properly. And he said, hey, I feel like Jesus. No, please, turn the thing upside down. <laughs> now, how can you crucify me the same way? That I don't know what already really happened, but it's Jesus we're here. But that was a man that had respect. He respected elders. He respected saviors. The Lord is good. That's why I think, oh, the Lord is good. <laughs> now, what was I trying to emphasize? You remove distractions. If your household is very busy, go away from there. Now, I'm going to emphasize something here. What Christians do is to tune, I think they want to focus so that they can descend new direction, they can receive correction. There's always a reason why you are in a spot and things are not working the way they are supposed to be. If you believe there's no reason, then you are proud. If all the excuses are pointed out there, somebody here, is this man? Is that person? He didn't help me. I called him. He didn't answer. When I called this man, you know, they do what he's supposed to do. When you finish all of that, Elihu said, your prayer, God doesn't listen to it. What do we do with our fasting as believers? Listen. We settle down and say, that which I see not, teach thou me. There's always something there's always an explanation. There is always an explanation. And the advantage we have as believers is that we can get corrected by the Holy Spirit. I say all the time, the greatest problem God has with us in blessing us is not that He can't make rain fall into Sahara Desert. Those are the small things. They are cheap, cheap things. The hardest, you know, the God's major problem in this earth is us and our hearts. When He says, don't eat, we will eat. What is it? The way you are doing it is wrong. He said, that's how they've always done it. Correct people. That is the major problem. I've said, look, listen. Saul or Saul. They told us that his name is Saul. They said that's the correct pronunciation. Saul is not his name. His name is Saul. Those who know and we believe them. All right? So they said Saul... The major problem of that fellow was stubbornness. Go and check it. All of those things he did, chasing David, that was not the problem. Some of the sins David committed, Saul didn't go near them. Read your Bible. Whose wife did Saul collect? Nothing. The only people Saul was killing were those who were his enemies. He never killed a friend. Did you see Saul kill a friend? Everybody saw him that he considered them enemies. But David killed Uriah, who he knew was a loyal friend. Everybody, including when he killed priests, he said it was because they were harboring David. You joined my enemies. But why did God deal harshly with Saul? It was because anytime he tried to correct Saul, Saul will find an excuse. He did not do what we told you to do. We did it now. What about the bleating of sheep and goats and cow and mules I'm hearing? It's a small thing. It was the people. They wanted to sacrifice unto the Lord your God. 
But we didn't say you should do that. We did what you said now. What about the goats? I said that is for sacrifice. But someone said, but the Lord said, someone, you, you take things too seriously. If just a few goats, how is that stopping things? Okay, what about King Agag? Look, listen, they, these people are gone. We've leveled the place. Okay, so what is he going to do now? But the Lord said you should kill everything and every, especially this king. <laughs> we have done exactly what you said we should do. God said, okay. Now, because you have rejected the, vo- the word of the Lord, therefore he has rejected you from being king. This is my understanding. It was not the first word that was the issue. It was the second word. When the Lord brought correction, it was when he rejected the word of correction that God said, no, this guy, no hope. For us believers, listen. The advantage we have, now I know I've left the thing I wanted to say, but I just feel I should finish saying this and I'll go back to it, alright? I was reading about uh, Peter, remember that? Okay? The advantage we have is that we can pray and God will point fingers for us that this one is what is wrong. And there are different ways by which you get to know it. There are times the Lord reveals it to you in your heart so strong. It's happened to me before. You don't have any doubt. Sometimes somebody will sit you down and show you from the word of God that what you are doing is wrong. Sometimes God grants dreams and visions. As for that dream, I've been corrected in dreams many times. And the good thing about dreams, when the Lord grants it, one of two things happens. One, you either personally immediately understand what he's saying. Or two, the dream will stay strong in your heart and then somebody will quickly give you an interpretation. Maybe somebody you share it with or you go to church next time and they use your dream to preach. You, I mean, you, you will know you are the one being spoken to. God corrects us different ways. Sometimes we come to church, we come for a Bible study like this, and the fellow is talking. And the word of correction is just coming to you as if they reported me to this man. That is the advantage we have, have, have as believers. And God doesn't do that unless we open our hearts to let him know we are exactly willing for it. Correction is not easy. What I mean by correction is that you're correct, you just accept like that. <laughs> you have run your ministry one particular way for six years. So I now proves to you that you have been wrong for six years. You know that, let me tell you, when people argue with you, I've left my message now, but I don't know, I, I hope I can get back to Peter. And if we don't get to Peter, we'll come, Peter will be waiting for us and we'll come back next time. Not in sport, alright? When we argue with you a lot of times, let me just tell you. Have you, you've had arguments with, with human beings and you can't understand why the man can't see what you are saying. You say, Two plus two is equal to four. And the man says, let's look at it closely. Ah! And the man is trying to argue with you that it can be five. Now I don't shout anymore. You know why? When an adult tells you two plus two is equal to five, he's not a fool. He's kept one aside. He's not exposing to the counting. And what is that one is kept aside? Why an adult usually can't easily accept something is, is the implication. The implication that comes with accepting. Sometimes you are saying that I've been wrong for six years. 
So you are thinking that, sir, what you are doing is wrong. But he is saying, you don't get it. If you are right, I have been wrong for six years. You are thinking, you are wrong today. But in his mind, <laughs> I have to accept that I have been wrong for six years. There are pastors that will not change what they are preaching. Simply because they are preaching for long. Correct them from now to tomorrow. They can't. And I was listening to one message. That's minister's conference. Ken Higgins um, minister's conference. He said he went to a man's church to go and preach. The Lord told him to go there. He said this was a, how did you describe it? All this church where everybody feel happy. We have many of them these days anyway. But in his time, he said they were not so, like he didn't like church. That when you say one thing, everybody jumps and feel happy. He likes to teach why people are paying attention. He went only because the Lord spoke to him expressly to go. He said, it's not the kind of place I like to preach. Because the people are too happy. <laughs> you know, like, yo, 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 you know, that kind of thing. He didn't like people to settle down and listen. <laughs> so, he said to the Lord, which kind of church is this one? He said, the Lord said, I want you to go. Why? Because that pastor is going to die if he doesn't listen to you. So he went, preached for, is it two weeks or three weeks? And the man did not attend one of the services. He was the one that invited him. This happy pastor invited this man of God, this prophet. And for two or three weeks, this man preached in his church almost every day. <clears throat> Maybe they'll take a break one day in a week. And this man didn't come. He said he's always going to a, a, a construction site. They had a new building. The man was always going to inspect building, doing something. Ah. He said, finally... He said, his wife told him, say, please, tell my husband, talk to my husband. The man didn't listen. Finally, Ken Hagen just shouted. I said, don't you realize you are going to die? And the man said, yes, I know. Like, so what? Why don't you just come for one of the services? This is why I'm telling the story. So the man said, I know what you are saying is true. And I want my church members to be blessed by it. That's why I invited you. He said, but if I come and sit down while you are preaching, I have to admit I'm wrong. There are things I have preached that are different from what you are saying. So if I sit down there, you want me to admit that I was wrong? He said, I told him straight, I would rather die than admit I was wrong. Are, some people don't say it overtly, but there are many people like that today. You show them things from scriptures. I'm not saying it's easy, but the reality is that no matter how stubbornly you keep, go, keep on going on your road, if you set out to go to Abuja and you pass through um, Onitsha to Asaba, then you reach Seluku, Agbo, they look you for front. You don't they head for Bini. And they say, sir, you're on the wrong road. You say, after I've driven for three hours, what do you mean? No matter how long you go on that road, you will never go to Abuja. Eventually, you hit the Atlantic Ocean. We will fish you out of the Atlantic. You can't say because I've driven for six hours, I must continue driving on the same way. You can't say that. You should get up and admit that you have driven wrongly for six hours, retrace your steps, or look for how to connect from the wrong place where you are right now on the another road that leads to Abuja where you're supposed to be going. You can't continue on the wrong road just because you have been on it for long. One of the greatest things you must learn to do in life is how to take loss. Ah, God, thank you. I learned it a long time ago. 
I, I preached a message on it too. It's in our collection titled, Take That Loss. 